Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. This week, we'll hear from Brian Loritz about the beauty of God's multi-ethnic kingdom. What is the gospel? Paul would tell the Corinthians, the fact that Jesus Christ died in our place and for our sins is of first importance. The gospel is the fact that I have been vertically reconciled to God and yet... To claim to be vertically reconciled to God and not flesh this out in the amphitheater of my horizontal relationships with others is to deny the power and efficacy of the cross. At the ERLC's National Conference, Brian Loritz, a pastor in California, spoke about the necessity of Christians crossing ethnic lines and investing in others who are different than us. His message, Right Color, Wrong Culture, Pursuing Multi-Ethnic Cultural Engagement, is a must-listen, especially in our current cultural climate. This message will equip you to build relationships that look more like God's intention for the church. Appropriately, I want to invite you to meet me in your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where I have inherited the title of Pursuing Multi-Ethnic Cultural Engagement. That is what they have actually given to me, and I'm looking right now in the midst of this title at a timer. They've set a timer on a chocolate preacher, which is incredibly ethnically insensitive. And they just broadened it. I love it. I love it. So it's so good to be here with you all. Let me just say thank you to Dr. Russell Moore and his team for the gracious invitation to invite me to come and to share with you all. Um, I I want you to take a deep breath. We are going to mash on something which has historically been uh, America's great sin, its great wound. Uh, Some of you all are probably going to leave here saying you mashed too hard. Others of you are going to leave here saying you didn't push hard enough. I want you to understand this. I am not an angry black man. One of my staff guys, white guy, came to me and said, Brian, if you could live at any era in human history, when would it be? I said, as a black man? Now. What am I supposed to say, 1787, 1623? Like any other time is not good for me. So I want you to understand that even though we have a lot of work to do, I am incredibly hopeful. So this is not angry black man talking. But I do want to press into something, and I do want to talk about it in a way that I hope is is winsome and inspiring and encouraging, and yet given the nature of the subject, there will be moments of discomfort. But to follow Jesus Christ is not an exercise in what's comfortable. So take a deep breath. Relax. Good to see you, Dr. Kevin. And uh, let's, let's begin the journey. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, pick me up in verse 19. This is the Apostle Paul talking. Paul writes, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became, I love that phrase, underline it, want to unpack it, I became, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, here it is again, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, we would call those Gentiles, I became, I became, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, here it is again, I became, I became weak, that I might win the weak. 
I love it. He's being redundant intentionally. I have become, I have become, I have become all things to all people, not just my constituency, that by all means I might save some. So Paul is not into contextualization just because it's cool. I think Paul, decade, two decades ago, would have a beef with the emerging church movement who just love to contextualize, sit in bars with their tattoos, have a drink, and never get to the punchline of Jesus. So contextualization without the punchline of the gospel is compromise. So Paul says, I contextualize, I become, I become, I become, but in my becoming, I'm getting somewhere, Jesus. That by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Father, stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue. Be with both the words and the tone of this message. Where you want me to wax prophetic, I'll do that. Where you need me to be more pastoral, I'll do that. But my job as a preacher is to take the words and get to the ears. You take it from the ears to the heart, to our feet. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Whenever I'm around my father, um, who's still in great health, but he's still aging, in in his winter years, I've um, felt led of the Lord to always quote to him Proverbs 13.22, which says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. (laughs) And I always say, Dad, are you a good man? Uh, Recently, I did this to him. We were sitting down having uh, lunch there at Cheesecake Factory in the north side of Atlanta, not too far from the church that he pastors. And I quote uh, Proverbs 13, 22 to him. And he says, son, it's funny you should uh, mention that. I've made some changes to the will. (laughs) My ears perk up and I say, pray tell, what changes have you actually made to the will? He says, it's interesting, I sat down here in the state of Georgia with my lawyer. And my lawyer looks at me and says, Dr. Loritz, I see you've got four kids. Three biological, one adopted. He says, before we get started, you need to understand some fundamental principles. He said, Georgia state law stipulates that at any given moment, you can amend from your will your biological children. But Georgia state law also stipulates that at no given point can you amend from your will your adopted children. That blesses me because when I read passages like Ephesians chapter 1 that says that when God saved me by his grace through faith, I was adopted into the family of God. I would always see adoption as second class citizenship, but now I understand through that lawyer's purview that adoption, spiritually speaking, is not second class citizenship. It is first class security. I get that from the text in Ephesians chapter 1, because right on the heels of saying that we have been adopted, Paul says, and we've also been sealed with the precious Holy Spirit. So that adoption, spiritually speaking and theologically speaking, is again not second-class citizenship. It is first-rate security. Now the question on the table that I need to entertain with you is, What do my siblings look like? When God saved me and placed me into the family of God, he placed me not just in a spiritual context, but this spiritual context is also cultural and ethnic. We do not subscribe to a colorblind ethic here. 
That's something that people of privilege can do. But to have a colorblind ethic is to misunderstand and it is to have a low view of the Imago Dei. Psalm 139 says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, not just my personality, spirit, and gifts. But all of who I am has been fearfully made in the image of God. God did not pull a Stevie Wonder when he made me. He made me, among other things, as a black man. No, my blackness must never trump my Jesusness, but don't get it twisted, I am black. And part of what that means is I am genetically predisposed to not like certain things. As a black man, I don't hike. You want me to go up that mountain? For what? And then once I get up there, how am I getting back down? Some stories you know black folk ain't got nothing to do with. Man gets mauled by bear. When in your life have you ever heard of Keisha or Tyrone getting mauled by a bear? Now, some of y'all might accuse me of being stereotypical here, but watch the Discovery Channel and count how many brothers you see. (laughs) Now, when the crocodile hunter died, I'll give you some insider information. Me and all my black friends said, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. Now, we might wear crocodiles, but we ain't gonna wrestle them. (laughs) Swimming with stingrays. We're different. And those differences are not to be ignored, nor are they to be idolized. So I would speak to my minority brothers and sisters, and I would say to them from time to time, I have a beef with you. You are allowing your blackness to trump your Jesusness. My minority brothers and sisters need to know, Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. White folk ain't the enemy. So now that I've been adopted into this family of God where John says, I looked up into heaven and I saw on site, on site, on site, people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. How would he know that unless he saw color? There will be color in heaven. So we cannot dismiss that now. It must be something that we incarnate and we live. See, the real question of Christianity is not so much, can I be your brother in Christ? It is, can I be your brother in law? And so what I want to press against now, I'm going to go to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because King felt this. I want to pull you briefly into his prison epistle in the next 24 minutes and 2019 seconds that we have together. It's the spring of 1963, King is in jail, he's alerted to the fact that there are some white clergy, many of them Protestant Christians, who have written written an open letter that has been published in the newspaper. They are upset because King and his lieutenants are making a mockery of them in Birmingham. The emphasis of their letter is these Christians, many of them, not all of them, these Christians are saying, King, we want you to be patient and let things run its course. 
king speaks to this passivity. Hang in there with me. I'm coming to your neighborhood. I'll show you how it connects. He writes these words. I have heard numerous southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right. And because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, he writes, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over, King writes, I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to raise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? These questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over, hear it now, the laxity of the church. So this is what I want to deal with in our next 21 minutes, 6, 5, 4 seconds together. They have assigned me the topic pursuing, pursuing, pursuing multi-ethnic cultural engagement. I want to address that our major problem is found in the word pursuing. That if there was one thing Dr. King was prophetic about, if there was one thing he spoke to in his generation that we have yet to deal with in ours, it is, hear the phrase, evangelical passivity when it comes to matters of race. I'm not talking about the KKK, the terrorist group. They've been pushed to the margins. I'm not talking about your peripheral racist idiot. I'm talking about what King is dealing with when he says, if you want to back me into a corner, my biggest opposition is not Bull Connor. It's passive evangelicals who are content to hear finely manicured homiletical masterpieces that deal nothing with the injustices in society. Can you really call yourself an evangelical and not deal with injustice? Can you really claim to have an orthopraxy that does not have an origin orthodoxy? This is what King's dealing with. So I I, want to take the color label off of it. I want to deal with evangelical passivity. Yes, on one hand, it is prevalent among my white brothers and sisters. And let me just share briefly about that. 
I got sick and tired sitting in Bible college and seminary. And here I am in, in these homiletics courses. And all, all, all the examples of great white preachers were great white preachers. Never heard a reference to Gardner Taylor. Never heard a reference to E.K. Bailey. Never heard a reference to E.V. Hill. On the rare occasion that we did in my Bible college have people of color preach, we're looking at the calendars going, it must be a special day. So they were paraded out as if they were some zoo exhibit. And all my years in Bible college and seminary, I didn't read one book required on a syllabus written by a person of color. See the passivity there? And the problem was, not so much that the book went on the syllabus, they didn't even think of me. I get tired of being called into meetings and asked to consult and coach and what do you think we should do? And I remember consulting with this one institution. I'd say, let me just save you some time. Don't have a diversity uh, department. Why don't you just require all your theological professors to just have one book on their syllabus in each class written by a person of color? Easy. Some years later, nothing's happened. I feel like my life in evangelical circles has been, hey, hey, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. So we're going to talk about pursuing. We must come to terms with what Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said when he marched with Dr. King, when he said, the only thing worse than hate is indifference. Take it or leave it. Can I really claim to love people who have been made in the image of God? Take it or leave it. I see evangelical passivity among Christians of color. This is going to be very unpopular, but I must say it as a preacher of the gospel. I have been inside too much insider talk with minorities who, who something happens, something's done by one of our white brothers and sisters, and they just, oh, that's just white folks being white folks. I'm done with them. That's ungodly. Praise God, God doesn't do that to us. That's just Brian being Brian. So what I would say to, to my minority brothers and sisters, get a thicker skin. Just keep coming back to the table. Okay, they called you Negro and not African American. They meant well. So what I want to argue for is we must have what I'm calling Paul's Redemptive impatience. It's 1 Corinthians 9. I, I wish I had time to parse it out, but here's Paul. Paul saying, come here. I want you to look at my friendships. To the Jew, I became a Jew. He says, you, you track with me on Mondays. You can probably find me having a kosher meal with my Jewish brothers and sisters. And there's a sense in which I'm at home having a good time. But that's not it. If you come with me on Tuesday, you might find me on the other side of town having barbecue with dry rub staining the corners of my mouth, eating pork with my Gentile friends. Paul was not a tribalist. 
He had an eclectic community. For Paul, racial reconciliation was not a church growth technique. It was the lifestyle in which he lived. So any leader who calls people to a destination they are not journeying towards themselves is a hypocrite. Paul says, no. So his redemptive impatience, we see it in his actions. We see it in his speech. Hey, Peter, Galatians chapter 2, he recounts this incident. Peter, I want you to understand, I'm a little disappointed in you, man, because I heard you used to always hang out with the Gentiles, would eat with them, would hang out with them, and then the Jews show up, now you withdraw from them. And in his words, he says in Galatians 2, that's out of step with the gospel. So here's what I plead to you, my white brothers and sisters. Have the prophetic courage to create awkward moments when Cousin Jim is around the Thanksgiving table and he says something racially offensive. Stop Cousin Jim mid-chew. It's out of step with the gospel. Paul gave his life for it. You know why Paul goes to jail for the last time? He is falsely accused of taking his dear brother, his dear friend Trophimus, a Greek, into the forbidden parts of the kingdom, of the, of the temple. This is Jesus in Matthew 21. He comes and he cleanses the temple. And, and, and yes, there's a sense of righteous indignation. But I also want you to understand, where does he cleanse the temple? He cleanses it in its outermost court, which was the court of the Gentiles. I think Jesus is also responding to some subtle racism by Jews who kind of flippantly said, this is the court of the Gentiles. They shouldn't be here anywhere. We'll just set up our little, um, our little store here. Who cares about the Gentiles? I think racism makes Jesus angry. And to not get angry over what Jesus gets angry over is to be out of step with the gospel. Okay, so how do we instigate? How do we instigate Paul's redemptive impatience in our lives? Three things. Number one, we must commit it, be committed to a holistic, robust gospel. Paul says in our text, why do I hang out with Jews and why do I do uncomfortable things like hang out with Gentiles? He says very clearly, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. What is the gospel? Paul would tell the Corinthians, the fact that Jesus Christ died in our place and for our sins is of first importance. The gospel is the fact that I have been vertically reconciled to God and yet... To claim to be vertically reconciled to God and not flesh this out in the amphitheater of my horizontal relationships with others is to deny the power and efficacy of the cross. Is the gospel social? You bet your life it is. If the gospel does not come to bear on your social relationships with others, you have not truly embraced the gospel. John says it this way, how can you claim to love God whom you don't see, but hate your brother whom you do see? Jesus says, you want to know the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, vertical. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, horizontal. 
It is the way Paul organizes his letters. He always begins vertical. Here's what you should know about your relationship with God. And he always ends with, here's how you walk in that truth with your neighbor. But here's what happened to us. In the 20th century, the devil did a number on us. It's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy, where there was this dichotomy, where the modernists split off, and they said, no, the gospel is horizontal. It's all horizontal. Love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. Well, with no truth to anchor them and to keep them steady, they soon drifted off into the abyss of liberalism and error. The fundamentalist says, no, 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 it's love for God. It's vertical, it's vertical, it's vertical, it's vertical, it's vertical. And yet they never got to the horizontal dimensions of it. They had a rigid orthodoxy without a refreshing orthopraxy. And that is why so many Christians were content to sit in churches with stained glass windows and preachers who could preach finely manicured sermons and do nothing about what was happening in their streets. It's the bifurcation of the gospel. And what Paul is arguing here for is a robust gospel that is firmly anchored vertically in my relationship with God and yet pushes me to the other part of town. So friends, if all your relationships are with people who look like, think like, act like, and vote like you, you are missing out on all the beauties of the gospel. Secondly, how do we instigate this redemptive impatience which is so necessary to pursuing multi-ethnic cultural diversity? It's a commitment to the robust gospel. Secondly, it's what I'm calling relational intentionality. Track with me now. Read Acts. When Paul comes to town... He always has two questions. Question number one, where do the Jews hang out? His missiological methodology is anchored in Romans 16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, not to the Jew only, but to the Jew first, and also the Greek. So he comes to town, Athens, Acts 17, Ephesus, Acts 19, Where is the synagogue? I want to preach Christ to them. He preaches Christ. He's not done. He says now in Acts 17, where do the Gentiles hang out? They say, oh, up that little hill there. He goes and preaches Christ there. Some Gentiles come out. Uh, Acts chapter 19, where the Gentiles hang out? Oh, the hall of Tyrannus. Here is Paul intentionally going from one side of town to the other. From one side of town to the other. He has intentional relationships. Hear me. It is insulting to say, just let things run their course. Racism has been in the making in this country since day one, some 400 years. Jim Crow was the intentional, aggressive, legislated acts by people. That kind of intentionality can only be unraveled, not by passivity or being organic. And it's got to be the church, not government. The church, not government leading the way. Now, I know you're disappointed. You wanted some secret sauce. So, Brian, are you saying to be a black person, get an Asian friend, get a white friend? Absolutely. Brian, are you saying to me as a white person, get a black friend, an Asian friend, a Hispanic friend? Absolutely. 
You need to read Dr. Corey Edwards. She's a dear friend of mine, PhD, assistant professor of sociology at the Ohio State University. All she does is research multi-ethnic churches. Her latest findings, she says, if you're a member of a homogenous church, homogenous churches actually promote and entrench racism. Why? Because you have cultural preferences and norms. You have a way of seeing the world And your way is not ultimately the right way. When I teach preaching at Gordon-Conwell, first exercise I do with them, I say to them, mostly whites, what's black preaching? They tell me. One tried to show me one year, pooping. (laughs) Don't ever do that again. Next question, what's black theology? They tell me. Quote James Cone or someone like that. I then say to them, well, what's white preaching? What's white theology? They can't tell me why. We tend to label what's variant and, and not label what we normalize. So what my white reformed brothers need to do, and I'm reformed, lowercase r, but what my white reformed brothers need to do, have coffee with a minority who may not be reformed, and they can tell you, it's easy to be reformed when you've always been on the right side of sovereignty. And don't try to fix it. Hear. Listen. To be white is not always to be right. And the problem with our white brothers and sisters is you don't think of yourself as being white. I get it. Just like I don't think of myself as having two arms. But the reality is if I'm with a person who has one arm, I need to step into that. And here, man, I'm flying. Let's go home on this one. How do I instigate Paul's redemptive impatience, commitment to holistic, holistic, uh, um, robust gospel, relational intentionality. Last one, this is the un-American part of the sermon. By way of life, I must incarnate discomfort. Paul says in our text, I have become, 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 I became, I became, I became. One, one scholar says this, the idea of the phrase I have become or I became, it is the willingness to step inside someone else's skin to feel what they feel. You cannot hold on to comfort and pursue ethnic diversity at the same time. Those two things don't match. Think, I think if Paul was honest, he'd tell you, I felt a little uncomfortable on Mars Hill. I think Paul, if he was honest, in his Jewishness would say, I feel a little uncomfortable in the hall of Tyrannus. But the ultimate example of I have become is Jesus Christ. It's not that the incarnation taking on flesh and walking and dwelling among us and the discomfort of that. If Jesus Christ would have hung on to comfort, we would be in an eternity in hell. If there's one book I could recommend to you, it is the scholarly work by Reggie Williams 
called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. You must read Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. It is a narrative of Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I was not familiar with. Here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this child prodigy, gets his PhD at a very young age. He decides with mounting pressure beginning to happen in Germany, he decides to come on over to the United States. He joins in a fellowship at Union Seminary, which is part of Columbia University, right there in Harlem, Chocolateville. Bonhoeffer says when he landed here, I was not a believer. I thought I was. So I start visiting all these churches, Bonhoeffer says, in the 1930s. He says, I visit these white churches, but it just didn't do it for me. So Bonhoeffer says, believe it or not, I actually ended up visiting and ultimately uh, joining the Abyssinian Baptist Church. Historic black church. He says, it is there for the first time I heard the gospel in all of its glorious dimensions. You know that phrase, cheap grace? That did not come from Bonhoeffer. So mad I didn't learn that in school. That came from his black pastor. He joins the church, which means Bonhoeffer submits to black leadership. He teaches Sunday school. He befriends a guy named Albert Fisher. Albert Fisher introduces him to Negro spirituals. And a side note, in his wonderful book, Life Together, it is said that they would actually listen to Negro spirituals. He hops on a train with Albert Fisher in the 1930s and takes a trip to the Jim Crow South. And what he sees blows his mind. And what is happening to Dietrich Bonhoeffer is he is going through the metamorphosis of I have become. I have become. I have become. Bonhoeffer says, I do not go back to Germany and stand up against the Nazi regime if I don't first join the black church. The only reason why we talk about Bonhoeffer today is he had the spiritual courage to traffic with people who didn't think like, look like, act like, or vote like them. Now, leaders, this takes courage. Because you start giving your people a taste of this, they're going to whine. Don't like the music. Worship. And that's where pastor, you pastor them and you tell them good because worship ain't about you anyways. (laughs) Oh, dear friend. Let's go to war with evangelical passivity. Let's have Paul's redemptive impatience. And let's hear the Lord say of us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done. God bless you. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. To subscribe, visit us online at erlc.com. And join us next week as we hear a compelling story of God's forgiveness after an abortion.